My background in Anglican liturgy does not prepare me well for speaking about Epiphany, hence the somewhat uh, radical title. I want to just ask a question before a word of prayer. Uh, what it is that we think the word epiphany actually means. Is there a common understanding of the word epiphany in the room? Karen, back, back, back row always is a good, good place to start. <laughs> a manifestation, yes. It's a manifestation. Uh, any other thoughts? Yes. It's too early. That's not the meaning. <laughs> to reveal, yes, indeed. Anything more specific than that? Our experiences with the Lord. Well, that's adding something, isn't it? It's, it's adding, it's adding the Lord to the the term. My my. Uh, point of departure here is that the word, theoph the, the word epiphany says nothing whatsoever about God. I mean, uh, epiphany is illustrated classically by Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, in which the epiphanies occurred to Scrooge in, in a sequence, and uh, they have nothing necessarily to do with God at all. So, fortunately, in the wisdom of the Anglican liturgy, uh, the occasion is usually referred to as the epiphany of our Lord. And as Della has just said, that really is a critical part of the definition. But we normally, it seems to me, at least in my uh, brief 30 years with the Anglican <laughs> Communion, talk about the epiphany unqualified. And it seems to me that we would be well advised, although I suggest this may be so radical as to cause a split uh, that theophany which explicitly talks about the revelation of God uh, would seem to be uh, more appropriate it is interesting that in the eastern orthodox tradition the word theophany is used more commonly than epiphany and of course as we'll find out later they're celebrating something rather different than what we are in, in our version of the epiphany of our Lord. So just by way of introduction, and uh, hopefully we can continue some of the discussion after we have had a word of prayer. Our Father, of your fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And we do recognize that in the epiphany of our Lord, we are brought into the covenant, and we do ask that you will help us as we consider the significance uh, of this feast for our times and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, I think that it is interesting 
that there are so many aspects of the epiphany of our Lord which are included in this uh, wonderful book, the Book of Common Prayer. And I thought just briefly to mention that there is a prayer before the offertory specifically for epiphany. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That prayer, which references the star that guided the Magi and references the way in which the awareness of the Magi that Jesus was indeed the King of the Jews, that little prayer just announces for us the significance uh, of the Epiphany season. Let me say, first of all, that, uh, that the Epiphany season follows Advent and Christmas. Those of you who didn't make it to the, seventh, uh, to the 8 o'clock <laughs> service last week will have heard from Dr. Packer uh, the part one of this particular presentation. Dr. Packer gave us the historical and theological background to this particular season. But I want to pick up on that, the continuity between Advent and Christmas and Epiphany. Because as I mentioned at the start, it's not a word that I was ever familiar with in the church in which I was reared. And it's not an occasion which I can recall having ever celebrated before becoming a member of the Anglican Church. And uh, what this sequence of events indicates is the nature of the preparation and the, the fulfillment of the Christmas season after considering for the month of Advent the theophanies which two couples were exposed to Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph after their theophanies in Advent all Jewish people and the theophany of Jesus being born in Bethlehem also entirely a community of Jewish people involved and we come to Epiphany and in come these extraordinary people out of left field <coughs> now what is the importance of that they like us come in out of left field in other words the Gentiles were not part of the project either through Advent or Christmas in any explicit way now I know we can understand it as Christians and we do and we worship Christ as our Lord through those periods but in terms of the text and in terms of the historical development we were really dealing with a Jewish phenomenon until we get to the epiphany season 
And I think that this strikes me as quite profound in terms of how we, as a, as a group of non-Jews, or largely non-Jews, come in out of left field into the purposes of God in a very explicit way. So let me just uh, think for a moment about our version, let us say the Anglican version, of Epiphany of Our Lord, and we'll move on to some other aspects of the Epiphany of Our Lord uh, at the second part of the talk. So first of all, as you have told me, Epiphany is literally a manifestation or a sudden appearance, a sudden revelation. And the celebration of Epiphany itself had its origin in the Eastern Church, and possibly because of the vagueness of the definition of Epiphany, I'm suggesting that we should really call the season Theophany and not simply Epiphany. The Epiphany of our Lord describes the day and season most adequately. The Theophany, however, means the manifestation of a divine being, and the Epiphany of our Lord is a manifestation of Christ's glory and divinity, or, more specifically, a manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles in the form of the Magi. Let me just read the first verse of Matthew chapter 2 as an introduction to who these magi were. (coughs) Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, (coughs) behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Herodotus says that they were members of the sacred caste of the Medes, which was a specific subgroup of the Zoroastrian religion. Their astrology and skill in interpreting dreams were the occasion of their finding Jesus. Next question. How many magi were there? Eastern Church thinks 12. Any other? Christmas costs three. (laughs) 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 Any other offers? Four. Four? Yeah. Four Four is another. (laughs) (laughs) I don't wish to go into legend here in any great detail, but legend does have it that 7,000 Magi set out from Persia, and only 1,000 actually arrived safely in Jerusalem to talk to Herod. But that's, that's beyond the brief of what we're looking at here. But 12 has a certain authority from the early church fathers, and uh, of course the argument would be presented that there were three gifts, there were the, therefore there were three people, but I'm sure that in the past it was possible for people to share gifts. <laughs> therefore, <laughs> therefore, there's no <clears throat> direct biblical authority for 
for three magi, except insofar as one interprets the Psalms and uh, the prophecies with respect to the arrival of kings at the, uh, at the cradle. But uh, I think that's, that's more by inference than by direct uh, statement. So, so I say in the Eastern Church, 12 is favored. In the, tw- in the Western Church, we say three because of the reference to three gifts. No actual number is given uh, in the scripture. Where did they come from? Any thoughts? Persia would seem to be the most probable. There are a number of candidates. Media, Persia, Assyria, Babylonia. These four are the only territories which had a Magian priesthood. That the Magian priesthood being the cast within Zoroastrian religion. If we take the distant Persia as the most likely origin, we're looking at approximately 15 to 1800 kilometers of travel across the Syrian desert, <coughs> across the Persian deserts, the Dashti Lut, Dashti Kabir, which are two of the harshest deserts to cross. Traveling through Damascus and crossing the ford over the River Jordan near Jericho. This could have taken between three months and 12 months to do, depending on how they were provisioned. And is this a very interesting thing? I'm inferring here, not the actual statement of Scripture. But the next verse in Matthew chapter 2 states, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? The question the Magi posed to Herod. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So if it was three months at minimum and a whole year as possible, uh, they were looking at arriving uh, in Jerusalem and subsequently Bethlehem a long time after the star itself arose and presumably the time when Jesus was actually born. This has some significance in terms of, uh, of uh, seeing the relationship between Jesus' uh, presentation in the temple, uh, which the Luke describes Uh, And uh, it uh, does look as if the presentation in the temple would have occurred then before the Magi arrived and that Jesus would have been a little bit older than just a a very small baby. There is some (coughs) confirmation of this in the history of art. Uh, Not that, again, one wants to regard this as authoritative, but the way in which the arrival of the Magi and their presentations and their worshipping of Christ are depicted 
in many cases show Jesus as being a toddler rather than the baby in arms. And uh, it may be that they had reasoned that this relationship was, uh, was the appropriate age uh, by which time the, the Magi had come. So when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Magi actually saw the star in the east at the time of his birth. Is the implication of that verse in Matthew. They set out at the time that Jesus was born and traveled, let's say, from Persia to Jerusalem. And then shortly after the birth of Jesus, the baby was presented in the temple. And it was at that time that Simeon and Anna welcomed the promised Messiah. Then followed the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem and reported to Herod that they had seen a star and had come to worship the future king. Herod panicked, but his priests gave instructions on how and where they were to find him. Because, of course, they had got the verse from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, readily at hand to show that indeed Jesus the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem the Magi adored the child as God and offered him gold frankincense and myrrh as we know there's a a personal distraction at this point. Um, one of my most famous moments as a little boy was being part of the uh, nativity scene, and I realize now it was a little bit off base, but <laughs> the, what, my most tragic memory is uh, forgetting the one word that I was supposed to say. <laughs> awful silence in the room <laughs> everybody turned to me and said <laughs> and I still didn't catch it <laughs> so that's uh, important to repeat gold, frankincense and myrrh there's some division of, or some variety of interpretation as to what the significance of these three gifts would be I think gold for kingship is undisputed and uh, incense as a symbol of deity <coughs> and myrrh a sacrifice to prepare for the burial of Christ is a, is a common uh, interpretation. Indeed, uh, in what is otherwise a seriously flawed hymn, the, th the We Three Kings from Orient R, which has two mistakes in the first line, uh, <laughs> but does have in the verse king and God and sacrifice as a, a very, I think, very appropriate interpretation of the significance of these three gifts. And as we know, the Magi were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and they returned home some other way. The other way may well have been south through
through Beersheba, and then on through Moab. Uh, again, quite a hostile journey across deserts, and and uh, a massive a massive undertaking. No sooner were the Magi departed than the angel bade Joseph to take Mary and Joseph into Egypt, where they stayed for two years until Jesus was almost three years of age. Herod, of course, was upset at the failure of the Magi to return to his office and proceeded with the slaughter of the innocents. And all boys of two years of age and under were slaughtered. Reasons for murdering such a large number included that there needed to be a safe estimate of the time taken on the journey and allowing for incorrect estimates of the time when the star first appeared. So in other words, the, the, the decision to include this whole range from zero to two was hopefully going to cover all possible errors, both in the predictions of the astrologers, of the, the Magi, and also the uh, estimate of the time taken. When the Holy Family returned from Egypt to, to Galilee, a new Herod had succeeded, and all was well. So this is the account that is celebrated in our Anglican tradition. And it has huge significance in terms of the way in which it brings non-Jewish people into the fold. And I think that that's emphasized then uh, in the following treatment of the collects that we have during the Epiphany season. How many collects are there in the Epiphany of our Lord's season? Next question. <laughs> there are so many experts in this room, I cannot believe <laughs> that this one has flawed you. <laughs> well, there are indeed, as was whispered from the back row, six collects in the Epiphany season. And they're quite remarkable, as is underlined in this wonderful purple-colored book on the collects of Thomas Cranmer. The first of these collect, collects emphasizes the prayer for the power to know and to do God's will. Those of you who were not constrained by staying in bed this morning will already have heard this collect. The power to know and to do God's will. The second one is a prayer for peace, both spiritual and temporal. The third one is a prayer for protection against dangers from without. The fourth one is a prayer for protection against dangers from within. The fifth one is a general prayer for the protection of the Church of God. And the sixth one is a prayer for purity in conformity with the revealed character of Christ. So, if in fact we do uh, read these collects in the next few weeks, you might find it helpful just to, to think of them as a group and the way in which this comprehensive set of prayers encompasses this whole 
reality of the bringing in of the church grafted onto the old uh, covenant and the way in which each of these components of our collects reinforces the, the lesson of Epiphany and the Epiphany of our Lord. And indeed, if I might humbly say so, it reinforces the idea that it might be called a theophany, in the sense that each of these is a very direct prayer for God's guidance in the church, uh, not just through this period, but of course at other times also. Now, we have these prayers, and we have these collects, we also have a number of readings from the scripture which reinforce the importance of epiphany and from our particular perspective the story of the magi uh, becomes particularly central and important but if we look at the traditions that have prevailed both in the eastern churches and at times in the western church there are many different epiphanies or theophanies that are celebrated. Especially Jesus' baptism, when God spoke, this is my well-beloved son. Also in the miracle at Cana, where the changing of the water into wine uh, was a manifestation of God's presence Christ himself. Also, of course, the nativity itself is another theophany. And then the visit of the Magi. These are the, the four primary ways in which the theophanies uh, are, are celebrated uh, in the church in general. The baptism of Jesus was the favored uh, theophany for the Eastern Church and was well established by the middle of the 4th century. But the Western Church laid greater and greater emphasis on the manifestation to the Magi. And so we represent uh, a second order tradition, if you like. Uh, and uh, this is... I mean, there's no, there's no fundamental theological issue here. They're both clearly very much manifestations of God's presence uh, amongst us. And uh, I suppose that the celebration of the baptism of Jesus is a very direct and spectacular example of a theophany, uh, but no less spectacular is this remarkable journey of the Magi. If you look into the various traditions, there's a confusion that enters into the discussion with respect to the celebration of uh, the nativity and the baptism and the presence of the Magi. The uh, part of the confusion derives from the confusion between the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. Uh, 
And uh, as you probably know, it's not until 1752 that there was the change in calendar. And uh, this meant a transposition by 13 days of the various dates. So this meant that if you carried on uh, using the Julian calendar, which many of the Eastern churches continue to do, although it's less and less common, there's a, there's a difference of 13 days. And so, for example, uh, the 19th of January uh, is celebrated uh, in the Eastern Church as 13 days after the 6th of January. So, in other words, the, they are looking at the arrival of the Magi on the 19th of January simply because of this change in the, in the calendar. Uh, it's a it's an interesting thing. I happened to look into. Well, I didn't know that David was going to introduce me, but uh, this the Welsh tradition raises its head again. <laughs> not so, not not so, so, not so well in this case. But nevertheless, it seems well into the middle of the nineteenth century, um, the Welsh tradition continued to be celebrating the uh, Julian calendar, and that in effect there was still. <coughs> in the mid-19th century, uh, recognition of that festival uh, in, uh, in, in, in the Welsh church. I can't vouch for this. I wasn't around at the time, but, but <laughs> that is what I have read and, uh, and tried to avoid the, uh, the gossip in the, in the, in the, in the history. So, as you know, Orthodox Christians celebrate Christmas on January the 7th. And their Christmas Eve is January the 6th. And the official explanation is that the majority of Orthodox Christians used the Julian calendar and have, in many cases, still not adopted the Gregorian calendar. And if you calculate it carefully, you'll note that December the 25th actually then falls on January the 7th, in the uh, Julian calendar, and that accounts for the for the the, the difference. The, I suppose the difference uh, between the Eastern and the Western tradition is that the Eastern tradition has a greater focus on the incarnation of Christ and the cosmic salvation that He brought and the mystery of God becoming man, and that that is the, 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 the key celebration in that Eastern tradition. Whereas the emphasis that we have with respect to the Magi is the bringing in of the non-Jewish world into the, the covenant. There is a, a specific emphasis on the shining forth and the revelation of Jesus Christ as Messiah and the second person of the Trinity at the time of the baptism. The Eastern Church also celebrates this particularly because according to tradition, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River by John the Baptist marked one of only two occasions when all three persons of the Holy Trinity manifested themselves to the world. God the Father by speaking through the clouds, God the Son being baptized in the river, and God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending from heaven. So you see that the, 
that that uh, particular tradition is quite consistent with uh, what one knows about the Eastern Orthodox Church. I don't know how many of you have actually worshipped in an Eastern Orthodox Church. Can you, any other? One, two, three. Okay, not the majority. Uh, in those Eastern Orthodox churches that I have attended, there has been an enormous sense of mystery, enormous sense of beauty, an enormous sense of the majesty of God, but very little in the way of uh, teaching, very little in the way of explicit sermonizing. So I suppose one could uh, infer from the fact that one emphasizes that one emphasizes the baptism of our Lord that that is a really, really quite a consistent with the sort of emphasis in the Eastern tradition. And the fact that we tend to be, as David put it, talkers, <laughs> might make the Magi tradition uh, more probable. But I do think that uh, it, it's... It's, it's interesting to recognize that these are theophanies that are just as just as God-given and just as God-centered, uh, but there are different events and different reasons for, for their uh, celebration. In the Church of England, which some of you know about, the eve of the Feast of Epiphany is celebrated as Twelfth Night, And the Monday after Epiphany is known as Plowman Day. Why? Another question. Why in the world? <laughs> Plowman Day. Follow the Twelfth Night. No, you don't need to imagine what people do on Twelfth Night. <laughs> well, sorry? Was that a... No, that's just a... That's just a, an, um, a hump. <laughs> well, yeah, it's apparently... It tells you something about the severity of the, the, the English winter. It's the start of the agricultural year. So you stick the plough in the soil after the twelfth night. I don't think anybody in Edmonton would find this a very useful... <laughs> Here's the way to go. <laughs> so as a result, there are a large number of traditions associated with uh, Twelfth Night and the uh, celebration uh, of Plough Monday, a lot, a lot of which are, are really deeply embedded in the traditions of the villages in England. And when you happen to be on your next tour of... Uh, the United Kingdom, if it's still united, uh, you might find yourself celebrating surprisingly secular things. But it's, it's a deep, a deep association between the agricultural traditions of the country and the deep religious fervor with which the uh, ceremonies are celebrated. And I know you're all anxious to hear about the Welsh tradition. Uh, in Wales, Epiphany is known as Ustwith. So there's a prize if anybody who can pronounce it. 
That's spelled Y S T W Y double L. And shows that the letter Y is very favoured in Welsh. And the interesting thing that where the Y comes at the beginning of the word, it's pronounced as a U, and where it comes at the middle of the word, it's pronounced as a Y. But that's a, an irrelevancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of the tradition in Wales was that a huge loaf or cake was traditionally prepared for the occasion of the Epiphany of our Lord. And oddly enough, this was divided into three parts to represent Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the three Magi. The three Magi just got one part. And again, it was theologically flawed, but that's not so. The Yule log and the wassailing tradition to wish farmers a good harvest in the coming year, were in common with the English tradition. But there was a most curious hunting of the wren tradition in Wales, the wren being the smallest bird, where young men would capture a wren, place it in a small decorated cage, and go from house to house showing it and asking in exchange for money or gifts of food and drink. This tradition came to a fairly drastic end in the early part of the 20th century, and uh, which was thought to be cruel. But the idea was to emphasize the, the epiphany, or the, the revelatory aspect of the epiphany event. It was a, a curious cultural adaptation. So having said this, you will appreciate that every single country actually has its own way of celebrating the Epiphany of our Lord. And I won't bore you with the list of extraordinary customs that, uh, that you can find out about. And if we were to take the viewpoint that the visit of the Magi to Jesus in Bethlehem was the only way of celebrating the Epiphany of our Lord, this would be unfortunate. Some of the traditions are remarkable in terms of trying to reenact the baptismal event. Uh, and particularly in Russia, where, which involves the breaking of the ice and people being dunked into ice-cold water as part of the celebration of Epiphany. So it's, uh, it, it, there's all, all kinds of, of, of curious traditions. The main purpose here was to suggest that it, the word Epiphany is not strong enough unless it's linked as is properly done in the, in the BCP as the epiphany of our Lord where it obviously is explicit but epiphany seems like it's too general and that theophany which explicitly tells us that God is making an appearance 
in our world, and uh, this is, seems to me to be the more helpful way to, to think about it. But I don't suppose it'll make any difference. I mean, I don't suppose anybody will pick me up, take me up on this, uh, although we do have the authority of James and, uh, and Jim to, to reinforce this if they think it's a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the important thing is not the word itself, but the actual fact that God moves in our world and that it's a real test of whether we can see God's action and whether we can actually rejoice and worship him in the context of this uh, extraordinary, uh, fascinating season. I'd like to sort of go full circle in terms of my own uh, awareness of the epiphany of our Lord. Why is it that one could live uh, for 20 years in a, a Christian uh, community and not hear the word epiphany? Or theophany for that matter. Why would one not celebrate this uh, event? There is a, a tradition of avoiding celebration of feasts which seems to me to to impoverish the church some of us who've come out of that tradition have found the celebration of the church here extremely helpful because not only does it focus on such a specific thing as the travels of the Magi and their worshipping of Jesus but it allows us to see the progression of the work of God through the calendar year. And I know that uh, Dr. Packer has frequently alerted us to the, the value of the church year, and I know that James is uh, doing a lot to, to emphasize that, but it seems to me that we, uh, from those traditions that do not celebrate such feasts, uh, one is impoverished by the, the fact. Now, it's it's the accusation of those who do not celebrate these feasts that, of course, people who are celebrating these feasts are ritualists and are, uh, are uh, not uh, spontaneous enough uh, in, their, in their worship. I don't think that's a, a helpful argument. I think that the reality is that we need reminding of where we are in, in God's world, where we are in terms of the revelation of Christ to the non-Jewish community. We need reminding of the fact that we have been tacked on to the tail end of God's purpose. And in a sense, that should put us in our place and make us realize how grateful we should be uh, to our God for this theophany, 